Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Wild Burrow Podcast. <clears throat> I don't know if I really talked about this last episode, but I did want to just mention the overall theme of the show and why I'm doing it in the first place. And really, it's to talk about the real economic situations that are facing ordinary Americans. And my personal view is that things don't look very good right now for most people financially. And why I'm doing the podcast is this basic fact is very rarely talked about in the media, especially for how important it is and what impact this has on people's lives every day. So these articles do come out occasionally talking about the struggles people are facing. But um, so on a weekly basis, I am going to try to pick out these articles and talk about them and try to just provide a forum to to really discuss these issues. And I also want to start talking about the causes. So why are we in this situation where a a small handful of people are getting extremely wealthy and the majority of people are having a hard time? So this gets into more structural issues, um, the inner workings of the economy. And to that point, um, the first couple articles I'm going to talk about this week are about some things going on in the U.S. Treasury market that the amounts of money involved in these markets is is huge. I mean, if even a tiny fraction of the money that's getting dumped into these markets was applied towards issues like homelessness or student debt or, or things like that, a lot of these problems could potentially disappear overnight. So we're going to talk about where is all this money going and what's it doing, and then... Um, We have a couple more articles more similar to what we talked about last week with the homelessness crisis and just Americans' feelings about the economy. And um, yeah, so let's get right into it. The first article I wanted to talk about today is from the New York Times. It's called Wall Street's Bond Vigilantes Are at Battle as U.S. Debt Sores. And what this article is talking about is the concept of a bond vigilante and you might be wondering what that really means but what they're talking about is the market for u.s treasuries so the u.s government primarily funds its operation by issuing debt and they do this by issuing these treasury notes or i guess they're also called bonds but basically they'll sell debt so they'll sell basically an iou and investors buy these IOUs. So the the government will say, I'm going to give you a 10-year treasury note. And when an investor buys that, they're giving the U.S. government cash in exchange for a promise to be paid back later with interest on top of that. So that interest rate really determines how expensive it is for the U.S. government to issue new debt. And Why this is relevant and why the New York Times wrote an article about this is that the interest on the debt is getting to be such a significant cost for the government. So they say that interest paid to Treasury bondholders is now the government's third largest expenditure after Medicare and Social Security. And the reason why this is becoming such a huge expense is 
the outstanding debt of the US government is up to $33 trillion. And even just from before the pandemic, I looked this up and the debt was in the low $20 trillion range, which it's still a mind boggling number. I mean, I don't know what, what like, what's the realistic chance that's ever going to get paid back. Um, but now it's even higher. And to the and the other thing happening is that the interest rate on those 10 year notes has has gone up a lot because of the Fed's effort to bring inflation down. The Fed has been raising interest rates, as you've probably noticed everyone out there. I mean, if you go get a credit card or an auto loan or a mortgage, interest rates have gone up a lot just in the past couple of years. And a lot of that's because of the Federal Reserve raising rates. Um, There are other factors that affect the interest rate on these treasury notes issued by the government and it does have to do with how investors are feeling about the economy so if people are taking on more risk they're going to be investing in stocks probably but if they're feeling a little bit more apprehensive about the stock market they're going to buy treasuries because it's generally seen as a safe investment because people think that the u.s government will still be around in in 10 years and they'll be able to pay your money back with the interest. So um, the article, it's talking about this big question, like how how long can the government keep this up? I mean, how high is, is the debt going to get? This is what they discussed in the article. And some people were saying, well, you know, it could get up to $60 trillion um, if we want to tackle all these big problems like climate change or whatever. And some people don't see that as a problem, um, but some people do. So some people think that the U.S. government is being very irresponsible with its money and that basically we're just creating, I mean, some people call the whole thing a big Ponzi scheme because it's kind of just the spiraling debt. And now with the interest payments, that just is going to make everything harder. So um so again the title it refers to these bond vigilantes so the bond vigilantes are basically private investors so the government needs people to buy their debt to keep operating and a bond vigilante it's basically someone who just refuses to buy u.s debt because it could almost be a form of protest against the fiscal policies of the U.S. So if a group of private investors that got together and they said, we're not going to buy your treasuries anymore, that would actually cause the interest rate to go up because if less people are buying the bonds, then the U.S. government has to raise the interest rate to make the investment more attractive. So the article is, this did actually happen, I think, in the 80s or 90s where these private investors did end up kind of shaping U.S. fiscal policy because it became much more expensive to issue new debt since they weren't buying it. So the the government actually had to, I forget if they cut costs or, or raise taxes, but they had to narrow the, they had to reduce the amount of new debt they were issuing. So, um, whether or not that's going to happen in, you know, in 2024, who knows, but there were a couple of quotes from this article I I found interesting. So um, one investor, she was more doubtful that the government can keep this up. Um, So she says the math doesn't add up on either side. 
And the reality is neither the right or the left is willing to take sensible steps to try and bring that fiscal deficit down. And the next quote from the article says, yet others are more sanguine. And I did have to look up the meaning of the word sanguine, which means optimistic. So um, the article continues, they do not think the U.S. government is at risk of default because its debt payments are made in dollars that the government can create on demand. So <laughs> I think those two quotes are interesting because it kind of shows this divide between people who are like, hey, look, two plus two equals four. If the deficit keeps getting bigger every year, then eventually the math just won't add up. You know, I mean, again, if the debt gets to $60 trillion, the debt payments are going to be in the trillion, the interest payments are going to be in the trillions of dollars every year. And it easily could become the number one expense for the U.S. government. So that's just such a, a, like a suck of um, all of the tax money that's going to the U.S. government. It's just going to be going towards financing its own continuing operations. So that's going to be very politically difficult, I think, if if that does happen. But what's the solution? That's what this woman is saying. Um, you're going to have to reduce the deficit, which means you're either cutting spending or you're increasing revenue, which probably means increasing taxes. So that's not very good. But um, the other view is, well, it doesn't matter because the government can always just create more dollars to pay its debts. And that is what the government is doing right now. So the Federal Reserve, um, well, I'll read this next quote. So it says that confidence to an extent stems from the reality that the Fed and the U.S. Treasury remain linchpins of global financial power and have the mind-bending ability between them to both issue government debt and buy it. So what does that mean, this mind-bending ability? So what they're talking about is the Federal Reserve has a bottomless checking account. Because of the specific structure of our economy, the U.S. dollar is, the value of the dollar is controlled by the Federal Reserve Bank, which it sits at the center of the U.S. economy, and it's supposed to be this apolitical institution that is only concerned about regulating U.S. economic growth. So they try to keep the economy from getting too hot, which causes an inflationary environment, but they also try to keep it from getting too cold, would be more, which would be more of like a recession where businesses aren't growing. So there's not as much job creation and that kind of a thing. And the way they do that is they raise or lower this basic interest rate that a lot of these other interest rates that consumers get are are based on. But they also have the special ability to create dollars out of thin air. So in the 2008 financial crisis and in a couple other cases, they have kind of come to the rescue of the global financial system because they have this ability to, they can't run out of money. And they are a special institution in our economy because if you or I ran out of money, we would have to declare bankruptcy. Or if a, a business ran out of money, they would have to do the same thing. So most entities <laughs> has a limit to how much money they have, but the Fed doesn't have that limitation. 
So when they say the U.S. government has a mind-banning ability to both issue government debt and buy it, this actually has happened a lot. So when the government can't find buyers for its debt, it can always sell it to the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve can never run out of money. So one of the largest holders of U.S. debt is the Federal Reserve, which is kind of a problem because how does that make sense? I mean, that's why they call it mind-bending, <clears throat> a mind-bending ability. Um, the government is basically lending itself money <laughs> is what it comes down to. And I think just on its face value, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is really what's holding up the financial system. And the point of this article, again, is in 2024, we could see this become more of a realistic issue. But I thought that it was important just to introduce this topic because this does affect people's lives. So when they say the government its debt payments are made in dollars that the, the government can create on demand. And the government has created these dollars to pay its debts. And that's what's devaluing the currency because every time they're creating dollars, your dollars become worth less just by fact of there's more dollars out there now. So you are owning a smaller and smaller share of the total outstanding dollars. And that's why our money is constantly losing value. And that's what 2% inflation means per year. It means that 2% of your dollars are, your dollars are losing 2% of their value every year just by government policy. So these are really the structural issues that I, I think are causing most of the everyday financial problems for people. And this new issuance of debt and keeping the, the debt growing and growing, it's, it's kind of just like, this is how they're keeping this machine going every day and every year. And the article is basically like, look, are we getting towards the end of how big this debt problem can get? So I don't have an answer for that. I don't think a lot of people have an answer for that, but it's, I think, an important thing to be aware of. And let's um, see where this goes in the new year. This next article is somewhat related to the one I was just talking about. So this one is actually from the Financial Times. And it's titled, Jump in U.S. Overnight Lending Rates Awakens Fears of Money Market Strains. So this article, again, it's getting into like the inner workings of the financial system and what's really underpinning all of this. And a lot of these things, like you would even never know they're happening. And I mean, I had no idea that, that this thing happened, which the article is going to talk about. But like I was saying in the intro, this this is where the real money is. And this is where the trillions of dollars are moving around every day. So a lot of these things are cloaked in very technical language and it's hard to even understand what's happening in these markets. So I did have to do a lot of research just to even understand what this article is talking about, to be honest with you. But it's important because again, it gets to the sustainability of how our government operates with, with all this debt. So let me read this passage from the article and then I'll try to explain what's happening as best I can. Um, I'm not an economist, but I have read about these things to try to understand um, basically like how did our society to come, come to be? Um, how do we get in this situation? So, um, so anyway, here's the quote from the article. So 
repo rates and central bank policy rates historically track each other. Well, let me, let me back up. So this article is about this market called the repurchase market. And what this market does is basically it allows these large holders of U.S. government debt. So like banks, for example, when you deposit your money in a bank, they're probably just not going to have a big pile of cash sitting there because of the inflation issue I, I talked about. If, if your banks just held your cash for you, it would lose 2% of its value every year. So they take that money and they try to actually make money from that. And one way they do that is they buy U.S. Treasuries because it's a very safe investment. And right now you're getting like three, excuse me, you're getting like three or 4% interest on a U.S. Treasury. So if you deposit your money in a bank, they're probably buying treasuries, at least with a little bit of that money. And <clears throat> where that becomes an issue is that's so a bank, you know, they might have trillions or billions of dollars of, of U.S. Treasuries. And if they want to go lend money to someone i mean they can't just lend them u.s treasuries they need to be able to lend them cash so when you take a mortgage out from a bank i mean they're sending cash to someone so where are they getting that cash from if they're holding u.s treasuries and these other investments so the answer is this repurchase market so <clears throat> what this this repurchase market is is on a daily basis it's pairing holders of u.s treasuries with people with basically big piles of cash and if you ever heard of what a money market fund is, if you invest your money in a money market fund or a CD, um, I guess that's a certificate of deposit, your cash is actually sitting in these repurchase markets. So your cash becomes part of this pile of cash. And so the way the market works is the holder of the treasury says, I'm going to sell you this treasury just for today, and then I'm going to buy it back later today. But there's a small fee involved in that, and that's basically the interest rate. So there's um, there. So that's called the repo rate. It's called the repurchase rate, and that's what this article is talking about. This this repurchase rate. So why does the repurchase rate matter? Well, that interest rate. This is a fundamental transaction every single day. Like I said, this is how a lot of banks just get their daily operating cash, and they're paying interest for that cash. They're paying. So what, what are they paying? This is an important question. Um, the repurchase rate historically tracks the federal funds rate. And what's the federal funds rate? Well, that's the interest rate that's set by the Federal Reserve. So as I mentioned, the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the U.S. And the main mechanism they have <clears throat> to control economic activity is send it, setting this fundamental interest rate that all other interest rates are based on. So if you're wondering why is why are mortgages more expensive now, it's because the Fed has raised its fundamental interest rate in an effort to slow down economic activity to try to reduce inflation. So this repo rate is supposed to track that um, the Federal Reserve's federal funds rate. And for the most part, it does. But the article is actually actually about how the repo rate there there was this thing that happened earlier this month in December, where the repo rate differed from the federal funds rate. So what what that means is that the Fed 
that would kind of ruin their plans because if the repo rate goes really high and the Fed wants the interest rates to be at a certain level, now you have these fundamental interest rates that basically control the price of everything like going out of control and they don't want that to happen. So, so now with that context, um, again, I had to read this article probably three or four times and do a bunch of other <laughs> research to even understand what they were talking about. But um, hopefully that provides some context to at least understand this quote I'm about to read you. So here's the quote. Repo rates and central bank policy rates historically track each other closely, but the signal sent by the repo market has been largely distorted during the past decade because the Fed flooded the system with cash by buying trillions of dollars of treasuries. Money market funds parked that surfeit of cash overnight at the Fed. But since the Fed stopped buying treasuries 18 months ago, investors have been left to pick up the slack. This has raised concerns that the increased supply of treasuries expected in 2024 will overwhelm the shrinking pool of spare funds, straining liquidity in money markets. So what happened was this repo rate, it's supposed to basically match, again, the federal funds rate, and it went it went 0.09% above the federal funds rate, which to me, I mean, so basically the, the repo rate went to like 5.39% and the federal funds rate is 5.3%. So that might not seem like a big difference, but I'm reading this article in the Financial Times and I mean, people from banks were like pretty freaked out by that. So it's really unusual for that to happen. And the quote I just read you, they're kind of explaining why it happened. And the reason is the Fed, they're trying to reduce their intervention in the market. They became very involved in this market and other markets during the pandemic and other financial crises where banks like, I mean, banks, you know, they could potentially be like, Hey, look, we're not even going to offer any cash because during the pandemic, for example, the stock market was crashing, all these investments were going haywire and they, they might not have cash to go in here. So then if that happened, the repo rate could go really high. I mean, if that goes over 10% or something, it's like your credit card interest rate's going to go up to like 20 or 30%, you know, getting a mortgage is going to be 15% or something. So that's why this is such a critical market. And um, so the, so the article, they're just talking about the reasons behind this blip. And one of them is what we talked about in the first article. There is a huge amount of treasuries hitting the market just because of the sheer size of the U.S. debt at this point. And that combined with the Fed trying to reduce its intervention in this market now that the pandemic is over and there's not really a big financial crisis happening at the time, that created an imbalance in this repurchase market. So there were too many people holding treasuries who needed cash and there wasn't enough cash in the market to cover that need. So the cash holders were like, look, I can't meet all this demand. So I'm going to just charge you even more money to, to buy your treasury. And that created this blip. And that blip is bad because if the blip gets, gets worse, then that basically means the fed loses control of the entire economy. So, um, this exact thing actually happened in 2019 and probably not many people heard about it, but the Fed had to intervene in this market by providing cash from their bottomless checking account. And why that would matter now is that when the Fed uses its its bottomless checking account to do things, 
people become afraid about inflation because again, they're creating money out of thin air and they're diluting the value of the dollar. So this again, you know, I never would have known that this had even happened, but the bankers in the article were like, some of them even said this will almost definitely happen again in 2024, just because of the amount of debt that the government has to, has to issue. So um, again, you know, I'm not going to know if this happens. I'm kind of, <laughs> I only know about it because the Financial Times wrote an article about it. And most people don't even know this exists, but it determines the price of everything via interest rates. Um, so it's important. So again, it just gets to this idea of how, how is this whole machine going to keep turning and cycling through? And if the Fed has to start printing money again, um, we have this period of calm right now with the inflation crisis, relative calm, um, just as far as the, the actual inflation number goes. And that could potentially start going up again if, if this is an issue. So again, I have no idea if that's going to happen or not. Um, nobody knows what, what's going to happen in the future, but I just think it's important to be aware that these things are happening because they do impact people's lives every day. And um, the first step, I think, to... <laughs> To changing these systems for the better is to be at least aware that, that they exist. So, so hopefully that was somewhat interesting for you. Um, but uh, it's interesting to me and it becomes interesting when you realize the connection to your everyday finances. So, so that's all I'm going to say about this um, for now. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. This Next, the next thing I wanted to talk about is the survey that I found. Um, I saw it on CNBC, but it was the survey done by Alliance Life Insurance Company, which I tried to do some research on them. I don't just want to give you random numbers from some <laughs> some crazy company, but they do seem to be a pretty big life insurance company. And apparently they do this survey at the end of every year about Americans' financial health. So <clears throat> what they found, I think it seemed to me to be a pretty accurate picture of how people feel about the economy right now. So I'll read you what they found. Um, so they say in general, more Americans say that they are more stressed at the end of 2023 than they were last year in 2023, 40% say they are more stressed. That's up from 34% in 2022. One of the ongoing stressors to finances is the rising cost of living and inflation. The rising cost of living is affecting how Americans feel about their income, making big purchases, and retirement. 29% say their pay increased from a raise or changing jobs in the last year. And of those who received a pay increase in 2023, 73% say that even after that increase, their pay still isn't keeping up with inflation. Excuse me. 23% say they put off making a big purchase like a house or car due to rising interest rates. 69% say they are concerned that the rising cost of living will affect their ability to save as much for retirement as they should. 82% say, so this is of student, people who have to pay their, um, repay the student loans. 82% say having to restart paying student loans will make it hard to make ends, ends meet. So there's just some more numbers for you. Um, to me, that, that reflected the reality of what a lot of people are facing. And um, the article I'm, I'm going to talk about later, 
is more of like the point of view of politicians and, and central bankers. Um, I talked about this last week, just this disconnect between what I would consider to be like the official narrative, which is that inflation, the inflation number is down. So, you know, things are better, but I mean, what people are, are telling this survey at least is that it's a hard time financially for a lot of people. And it's because of this inflation and because of the cost of living increase. So this is important. You know, 40% of Americans are more stressed than they were last year. That's, that's not good. That's a sign of an unhealthy, something is, is really wrong in our society. Um, if 40% of people are more stressed than they were the year before, that's, that's a sign that there's a fundamental widespread issue that we are facing. And one of the themes for this show and part of the reason why I'm doing this in the first place is who is talking about that? Who's talking about the 40% of people who are, are more stressed in 2023 than 2022? We have an, a presidential election coming up this year and which candidate is talking about this 40% of people. And so again, that's the first step. It's like, just even acknowledge the problem. And that's not even talking about what are, what could be a solution for that? How do we get that 40% number down? You know, that should be the top priority for politicians in our country and no one's even talking about this. So it's this conundrum where in my opinion, the most important problem in the country is never being discussed. And we're not even talking about coming close to seriously discussing some practical solutions to this problem. How do we improve the financial situation of the majority of Americans? So, it's not good. And I just find it hard to believe that our representatives in the government aren't aware of the problem. Um, this is kind of their whole job to listen to their constituents and they take phone calls and letters from people. So I'm sure they know what's happening. Um, but this life insurance company, they talk to Americans and that's, that's what they had to say. So, um, so anyway, I don't, I don't really know what the solution is here, but um, personally, this is why I'm doing the podcast. And uh, I was going to say this at the end of the show, but I'll bring it up now. So one of my, I guess the long-term vision for this podcast would be to like provide a forum for this, this 40, 40% of people just to talk about the realities that they're facing and the different structural problems that are affecting their everyday lives. Because I don't feel like the media is giving enough respect to this problem. I mean, in my opinion, this should be on the front page of the New York Times every day. Is this problem is, <laughs> is affecting 40 per, 40% of people. It's, it's affecting even more than that, probably. But it's affecting 40% enough where they're having mental health struggles because of, of the financial situation. That's how bad it is. So, um, so that's what this podcast is for. It's a space to talk about this, this problem. And, um, hopefully I can become more and more effective at, at talking about it. The next article is from the wall street journal. 
you may have noticed um reading articles from newspapers other than the New York Times this week and the reason behind that is I literally couldn't find enough relevant articles in the New York Times so <laughs> that's just getting to my point where they're not talking about these these real fundamental economic issues on a regular basis so anyway um so the Wall Street Journal had this article it's titled mid-sized cities struggle with snowballing homelessness and this is related to the homelessness report that that we that um I talked about in the last episode and they went to Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a mid-sized city. I looked it up. It's like 200,000 people. And they looked at what the homeless situation looks like there. So I'll read you some quotes from the article. So it says, the Grand Rapids area recorded a 34% increase in homelessness since the start of the pandemic. When tents began appearing at prominent downtown park, at a prominent downtown park, and more people were seen sleeping on well-traversed sidewalks nearby. Nearly 1,240 people were counted sleeping on Grand Rapids streets or in shelters in January 2023, compared with the 700 to 923 people counted each year between 2007 and 2021. The average price landlords ask for rent in Grand Rapids about $1,728 in November, according to Zillow, is up nearly 18% in the past two years, outpacing Michigan's other major cities. Excuse me. Rental asking prices are up nearly 44% in Grand Rapids in the last five years, near the increases in cheaper Lansing and Detroit, the Zillow data show. So, I just thought that this provided a little bit more detail about what this homelessness crisis looks like on the ground. And again, just making the connection between the homelessness and the increasing rent prices. Um, I mean, personally, I just feel like there's a very strong cause and effect there. But um, they talked about how this is just affecting life for particularly the business owners in downtown Grand Rapids. I mean, there's homeless people everywhere and they're having to make rules um, to, to just get the people out of there. They even provided this one detail where businesses are covering up their outlets that are outside to prevent homeless people from charging their phones there. So it does seem very cruel. Um, but at the same time, it's like if you're a business, you kind of have become accustomed to just some sort of, some sort of sense of normalcy where there aren't like homeless people on the sidewalk outside, probably preventing customers from walking into your restaurant or coffee shop or whatever. And to me, this just illustrates how bad the economic inequality problem has gotten. Because for a long time, you had groups of people who traditionally did experience poverty and, and uh, economic insecurity, but we had a system in this country of like isolating those people from other groups. So, I mean, what I'm talking about is if you want to go to any inner city, I mean, you would expect to see very poor parts of the city. And, um, but we had a system where if you didn't go to those parts, you wouldn't see the issue, but it's gotten so bad that you kind of can't avoid it staring you in the face anymore. So Grand Rapids is like, it's, I have been there and it's this very, it's in a very beautiful setting. Um, it's in Western Michigan and you're just kind of feel like you're out in nature. There's a big river running through downtown and it's a very beautiful city. And it is a place traditionally where you would be isolated from these, these 
um, these economic problems. I mean, yeah, if you go to Detroit, you would expect to see a lot of poverty and stuff, but you wouldn't expect that in Grand Rapids. So, that's not the case anymore. <laughs> um, and it's it's really not good because it shows how bad the, the problem has gotten, but I mean, maybe a positive is like, even though you can physically isolate yourself from people going through this, personally, I think this takes a mental toll on everybody. Even if you're financially secure, you still have that knowledge somewhere in the back of your head that there's Americans who are really having a hard time. And in my opinion, these people are in a situation that no human being should have to live through. Like nobody should be homeless. Um, so again, these are the kind of the fundamental issues I want to get into on this show are what is our economy based around? Is it, is it based around making a profit or is it based around the, the well-being of a human being? Because if that's how we're going to measure our society, like we have a lot of big changes to make. Um, if there's 1200 homeless people in Grand Rapids, then we need to figure out a solution where these people have houses. And a lot of things probably had to happen for these people to be on the street. Like nobody wants to end up in that position. So usually there's a series of events and a lot of times um, it is economic things, but you know, with our country not really having a social, any kind of social safety net, it's like one big expense could put you out on the street. I mean, that's just, the, that's, that's just the reality. So personally, I think we need to kind of rearrange things so that we prioritize everybody just having basically what they need in life. And these people are, are lacking that they don't have stable housing. And if you're lacking any one of these fundamental human needs, like you can't, you can't grow and flourish. So, um, so anyway, I hope that this issue, at least becoming more widespread, will, will bring some attention to it. And hopefully as a society, we can start talking about some structural changes to make this situation better. Okay, so that's it for the podcast this week. And I did just want to take a minute to talk about the year ahead. Um, 2024 is coming up and we have a presidential election coming up on the horizon. So there's going to be a lot of political debate going on in this country. And I just hope that the economic piece of that doesn't get lost. Um, whenever I look at exit polls from elections, the economy is always the number one concern of people, because again, this really determines like your quality of life and your ability to accomplish your goals and, and have that, that base to, do what you need to be happy in life. So it's an important topic. And I think what we're going to find is a lot of left versus right arguing and a lot of this culture war kind of stuff. And all of these other issues are going to be discussed, anything but the economy and, and the federal reserve and the national debt and these fundamental things that are affecting what in reality is, is voters number one concern. So my hope for this year coming up is that we can stay focused on these problems because whether or not it's an election year, 
people are still going to be either benefiting or suffering from the economic situation in this country. So I hope that we don't get too distracted by the left-right debate. Um, we need to start looking at these deeper issues. And to that end, my hope for this podcast is to make it more interactive at some point. So if you are out there listening to this and you're finding it interesting and you feel inspired either way, if you're agreeing with me or disagreeing with me, um, please find some way to provide some feedback to me. Um, I did start a Substack for this podcast, which I'm going to give you the address right now. But if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Google or YouTube, there should be a link to my website on there. But I'm going to give it to you. It's um, it's uwildborough.substack.com. That's the letter U, wildborough, all one word, .substack.com. So you can go on there, um, you can write me a comment, what you think, and I would love to hear your feedback. And um, I would love to have a segment of the podcast where I can talk about um, comments that people leave me. I also did get onto YouTube, so you can go write a comment to me on YouTube. Or um, if you go on my Substack, you can find my Reddit username. And I'm pretty active on there. I mean, all these articles I'm, I'm posting to Reddit throughout the week. And um, the Substack, actually, if you want to read the articles and click on the links of the articles I'm reading, that's all in a weekly newsletter I'm, I'm writing on there. So so I would love to hear from you. Um, there are apps where we can have like a, a call-in. I think the app is called Call-In. And um, we could have a, more of a a conversation with each other actually so it's um i think that would be that would be pretty cool and um at some point i would like to start to get some audio clips from people if if anybody does want to share their story um that i think could be potentially really valuable so those are my hopes for the year ahead and again we kind of just need to start talking about the problem to even that's like a prerequisite before finding a solution and um, finding a solution to this, I think is, is really critical. So anyway, I hope, um, everyone's been having a good holiday season. I don't know if I'm going to be doing a show next week because, um, I am very fortunate this year to be spending the holidays with friends and family. So that's going to be taking up most of my time, which I'm, I'm pretty happy about over the next week. So don't know if there will be a podcast next week. Maybe, maybe there will or won't, but I hope wherever you are, you are able to enjoy the holidays a little bit. And uh, Happy New Year to everyone, and I will be talking to you next year.